Welcome to the podcast of Rogue Valley Christian Church. We hope to be a place that connects you to Jesus, encourages you to grow in your faith, and challenges you to serve the world. And when we read about the story of the church, we're not only reading about history, but it's also, in one sense, our origin story. I know in the announcements we mentioned that this next Sunday we're going to celebrate 86 years uh, as a church, but even beyond that, the church, the church that Christ established some 2,000 years ago is still alive and well today. And today, even as we are alive and well, we're playing a part in this story. It's a story that even though we're going to get to the book of Acts and kind of finish it, it's a story that continues today. But remember, for the disciples, for those first followers of Jesus, the beginning of the church was very confusing. In fact, right before this moment that we've read about in Acts chapter 2 that we're going to take a look at, for the prior 10 days, the disciples had been holed up, if you will, in an upper room. And when I say disciples, we're not talking about just the 12. We're talking about the first followers of Jesus that could have been upwards of over 100 people. And they're holed up in an upper room wondering what was going on. We read it back with nostalgia and respect for the history, but they experienced it with much anxiety, worry, fear. They were terrified. Don't forget that they had just 50 days prior to this watched their Savior get brutally crucified at the hand of the Romans. And just as they were overwhelmed with hopelessness that came with that three-day waiting period, he rose again on the third day, which gave them hope, but was still somewhat overwhelming and trying to figure out how it all worked. He hung out with them for 40 days. I don't know about you, but I've read about him, Jesus, after the resurrection. He appears to his disciples off and on for some 40 days. And to me, 40 days was always kind of random as if, like, He just didn't want to leave yet. There's so much more going on that we only get if we remember that the context of the story that we're reading and the culture that we're reading it from was a Jewish culture, not an American one. It was a Jewish culture, not a West Coast Christianity culture. It was a Jewish culture that certain festivals and annual celebrations were organized to communicate things to them. So for 40 days, the disciples were interrupted. Their existence was interrupted by Jesus, who continued to appear to them. And then on that 40th day after Passover, after his resurrection, he ascended to the heavens. And remember, the disciples were awestruck, just wondering what is going on. And they're told by a visitor, you just hang tight. Jesus himself in Acts chapter 1 told them in verses 4 and 5, you wait here in Jerusalem. I know that I've given you instructions to go out into all the world and make disciples. And I know that I've told you you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. But before that takes place, you wait here till the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Holy Spirit is going to come and and, and empower you for the purposes that I've set you apart for. The the Holy Spirit's going to come and empower presently his church. 
So for 10 days, 10 days, they wait anxiously. Now, they didn't know it was 10 days, so it's not like they were counting down to your birthday. Do you guys get that? Do you guys still get excited about your birthday? I do. I get excited about my birthday the day after my birthday. Are you with me? And I will bogart any month around my birthday as my birthday. And I just get excited about it. I love turning another year old. And once I get to that year, I'm almost to the next year. So the day after my birthday, the day after this last August when I turned 52, I was almost 53. And I'm going to tell you right now, as soon as I turn 55, I'll almost be 60. I, get a, I love it. I just love it. They didn't have a countdown. They didn't have a countdown. They just waited day after day after day. And their waiting wasn't filled with the excitement of celebration. Their waiting was filled with worry and anxiety, trying to figure out what all this means and why it was all going down in that way. Not to mention all around them was a religious culture that wanted to get rid of them. Like, we can't forget that. It was a religious culture that was wanting to make them go away, so to speak. All the while, in the midst of their culture, they were coming up upon a celebration, a Jewish celebration, known as the Festival of Weeks or Pentecost. Fifty days after the Jewish culture celebrated Passover, seven weeks plus a day, Festival of Weeks, the Jewish culture after celebrating on Passover the reality that God had delivered them out of bondage and enslavement in Egypt, 50 days later, with a couple of celebration, minor celebrations in between, they celebrate the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. And in that celebration, just so you know, it was a significant celebration. The day of Pentecost or the celebration of Pentecost was another one of the pilgrim festivals that Jews, good God-fearing Jews, needed to make their way to Jerusalem to be present for the celebration. There was three of them, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And if you go back and you look in the story of Jesus, you'll see he did significant things at these festivals. Well, this is another one. So the disciples are waiting, and they know that the festival's coming. And with the festival comes lots of people. There's an influx of people in Jerusalem. So for the disciples, if you put yourself in their position, not only are they overwhelmed, afraid, anxious, and worried, wondering how all of this is going to work out, now, without a doubt, they had to be wondering, are we going to miss it? Because with the Feast of, Pas of, 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 of Pentecost, came hordes, if you will, probably the wrong word, but lots of people. And those people and the celebration would have been distracting. I don't know about you, but Jesus didn't tell them, like, the, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And he didn't tell them how the promised Spirit was going to come. He just said, you just wait for that moment. And if you're them, you know that, well, wait a minute, our whole world right now is going to get really busy. Are we going to miss it? You see what I mean? Are we going to miss it? Have you ever been expecting a really important package from like Amazon? And you just know it's going to come on that day. And you don't know at what time of the day. And then you look at your app and it says out for delivery. And so you do whatever. I don't know about you, but I like stuff and I don't like my stuff getting stolen. 
So if I know that something's coming on a certain day, I rearrange everything so as not to miss it. Ten days of wondering, waiting, being overwhelmed. And then the Spirit comes. Now, what's interesting is we, sell, is we recognize Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through, t- 1 through 13, and the coming of the Spirit. One of the things that we have to at least think about is that the concept of the Holy Spirit has been confused, misunderstood, used, and abused since the beginning of the church. And one of the great things about going through the story of the church, as it's found in the book of Acts, is we get some clarity from the beginning about the Holy Spirit. We get some clarity. First and foremost, remember, it was promised by Jesus as a way of empowering his church to do the mission that he had for the church. First and foremost, it was promised by Jesus to help individuals to be about the mission of God in their lives, not just to be selfish with the things of God in their lives. First and foremost. Now, as we go through this passage, we're going to see that there's some significance to the way that the Spirit comes. The first thing we see is the day. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. I don't think by any stretch of the imagination that it's a coincidence that the Holy Spirit, the promise is fulfilled by God on the day of Pentecost. For you and I, you're like, yeah, we're Christians. It's Pentecost. This is what the day was about. No, not for them. They were a Jewish group of people, a ragtag group of individuals within Judaism that were celebrating something else, not what we remember. They were celebrating the giving of the Mosaic Covenant. Every single Pentecost, they would reaffirm their commitment to the Mosaic Covenant. They would reaffirm their commitment to the law. They were looking back and seeing that time when God gave Moses the law. Do you know what the law, not just the Ten Commandments, but the law did for God's people when they were wandering through the wilderness and made their way into the promised land? The law served as a help. The law served as a guide. The law served as wisdom and instruction for them, morally, relationally, personally, spiritually. The law helped them. Do you guys see that? And they would have been celebrating that. They would have been commemorating that. In fact, when the Jews celebrated Pentecost, there was, just like there was at a lot of their celebrations, a moment where as a nation, they reaffirmed Affirmed their commitment to the covenant that God had with them. It was super significant for them. Therefore, I think it's significant for us because it's on that day that God says that covenant was temporary and I have given you a new covenant that is everlasting and I'm going to ratify, confirm, and affirm it on this day. Like it's significant. And I'm going to do so by giving you a helper who would lead, guide, give you wisdom, instruct, and help you. But this covenant that I want you to embrace now is not the temporary covenant called the Mosaic one. It's the new covenant in Christ. Now for us, we look at it and we go, that's amazing. Or at least I think you should. Yes. 
right? Like if we're going to nerd out about the Bible, which I think we should, like this is one of those moments where you go, whoa, God really knows what he's doing. That's an amen or a yes or an I agree or why are you waving your hand around, whatever. That's one of those moments where we look and go, God really knew what he was doing. Because it was from his plan, his providence, if you will, from eternity past, that this moment would happen on this day, which would blow the mind of those Jewish first followers. I'm going to give you a sneak peek. One of them, named Peter, according to the empowering of the Holy Spirit, would get it all. Because next week, while in the... Con so here's a really cool thing. We had this... We had this conversation yesterday about where we're at today. Like, it's Pentecost Sunday, and my sister-in-law, her name's Mindy. She's right over there. She, she said, well, is it Pentecost Sunday? And I was like, I don't know. Part of me wanted to be like, look, it's my house, and I'll have to figure out if I'm Jewish or not. It's whatever day I want it to be. But then I got on my Googler, right? I got on my phone, I was like, Pentecost 2023, it's next Sunday. It's next Sunday. And we thought to ourselves, we should rearrange the teaching schedule so that we're talking about this on that day. But then, while we're worshiping, I realized next Sunday, we're going to look at a passage that's still on Pentecost Sunday, where Peter stands up and he says, let me tell you what this is all about. Those are not the words he used, but that is the sense. So it still works. We're still on Pentecost Sunday. We're still going to do it. We didn't have to rearrange the schedule. It is as if, are you with me? God knows what he's doing. Like the reality of the Holy Spirit coming on this day would not have been lost on them. I recognize for us, the American West Coast Christian Church, for us it means, oh yeah, it's Pentecost. That's when the Spirit came, not for them. There were thousands of years of tradition that came with it. And that's when God says, while you're reaffirming this covenant, I'm revealing this one. And not only am I going to be revealing and affirming and confirming it, I'm going to empower you to participate in it. So the day of the Spirit's arrival was significant. But the way that the Spirit arrived was unmistakable. Unmistakable. Even though it's mysterious and confusing for us. Because the Holy Spirit, as we read, here, I'll just read it for you again. And verse 2, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Whew. I know that that's not mighty, rushing, and it doesn't fill the entire house. But that's what happened. And a sound like a mighty rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. I don't know how to play that one out. So you got to win. Fire. Going on them, right? And verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now we can stop right there and we can look at church history over the last 2,000 years and get really confused about what was going on. 
And we can take what was going on there out of its historical context, out of its Jewishness, with all due respect, and we can take it out of there and we can make it whatever we selfishly want it to mean. Let me just say this. The giving of the Spirit at Pentecost was never meant to be something that Christians use selfishly to show off for other people. Are you with me? There was something significant about it in terms of its affirming and confirming, ratifying this new covenant. But the way that the Spirit came, it was unmistakable, if not mysterious for us, unmistakable for them. Remember, they are Jewish. They're Israelites who had committed to the Mosaic Covenant for thousands of years, even though they didn't do it all that great. They were still committed. And look at how God manifests the Spirit, which, by the way, one of the keys to understanding the Spirit is not to think of the Spirit as a thing, but to realize the Spirit is God. Are you with me? That wholehearty, amen. The Spirit is God, and God, the Spirit, manifests himself on that day in three distinct ways that we make all kinds of superstitious things about, but they would have recognized them for what they were. Think about those three ways. Number one, the Spirit manifests itself and shows itself. God reveals himself in this most unique and powerful way. Don't forget the disciples, they were expecting a Holy Spirit that would come upon them, temporarily empower them, and then go away, right? They did not expect that the Spirit of God was going to come dwell within them forevermore. It was their, their minds were being blown as we read, okay? So the Holy Spirit comes. The first description is it comes like a mighty rushing wind. Now for you and I, we're like, yeah, because that's what Acts chapter 2 says. But if you go back and you look at the Old Testament, these Jewish people who were experiencing the presence of God were experiencing the presence of God like he had always revealed himself. Go to the book of Ezekiel. You'll read of a valley of dry bones, dead bones, being brought to life by what? A mighty rushing wind, which in that day they recognized was nothing less than the very presence of God. How about tongues of fire? Right? This fire thing. We get all sidetracked by tongues, and we're going to get there in just a minute. You ready? <laughs> How many of you read this early last week and were like, oh, yeah, tongues, let's go. Right? But it's fire. Let me ask you a question. I asked for service. We'll ask you, how did God introduce himself to Moses? Through a bush that was on fire but not being consumed. I feel like we have to add that part because it's miraculous. Also, then when God raised Moses up and he used him to lead his people through the wilderness and into the promised land, the very presence of God was represented by a pillar of fire at night. God knows what he's doing. And he's revealing himself to this rag tag gnarly group of first followers that had no business organizing as a world-changing movement. He's revealing himself to them in a way that they had always known God to be. 
What about languages? Because it says not only were these like tongues of fire resting upon them, but then they also started speaking different languages. First and foremost, what we have to understand is the word language. The sense of the original language is, ironically, it is a language that was known to others, but not known by the speaker. So we're not talking about something different here. We're not talking about a language that no, a, a heavenly language that needs heavenly interpretation. What we're talking about here in this moment, according to the language, is an earthly language that is known to others, even though it wasn't known before that by the speaker. In other words, these Galileans, first followers, start to talk about the mighty works of God in languages that they had never known before, but were understood by people who were there from all over the world. How did the people from all over the world get there? It was the Feast of Pentecost. It was a pilgrim feast. They were expected as good Jewish people to travel from the known parts of the world to there. And they start speaking in languages that the people understood. Wait a minute. That's my language talking about the wonderful, glorious works of God. If you go back to the book of Numbers, in the book of Numbers chapter 11, you'll read of a time where Moses is leading the people through the wilderness and the people are acting like four-year-olds. You can fill in why I thought about that. They're acting like little toddlers that are never thankful, always complaining, and never satisfied. If you go to the book of Numbers, God's people making their way through the wilderness, God has provided for them day by day by day by day by day by giving them manna from heaven, which is to say, we're not sure what it was. And each day they had manna. God provided them manna. But they, being much like we are, I just called you a four-year-old. <laughs> they grew unsatisfied with God's provision and started complaining about it. Moses goes to God, and at first he does what a good leader should do, and that is he seeks God. But while he's seeking God, if you go back and read Numbers chapter 11, he's really brutal. He's like, these people are a pain in my neck, and there's over 600,000 of them, and it's not fair that you're asking me to lead them because they don't appreciate what you're doing for them, and I'm getting tired. You know what? It would be okay with me if I was no more. You ever been there? Yep, it doesn't take 600,000, it only takes about six. <laughs> so then God says to Moses, he said, I want you to appoint some other people to help you with the mission. And so he appoints some of those people. And what happens is this, it's amazing. Those people, two of which, Eldad and Medad, those are good names if you're considering having children. <laughs> that is a cheesy Christian joke that's low-hanging fruit that gets good traction no matter when you use it. Eldad and Medad, these brothers, they're part of the group that Moses has, uh, has, has, has asked to help him. And at the end of chapter, uh, uh, Numbers chapter 11, they begin to speak in a different language that was known to people around them about how God was going to be faithful with them. Now, for you and I, I don't know about you, but for me, Numbers is kind of an elusive book. We kind of skim over it. But for the people in Acts chapter 2, that grew up with these stories, they knew exactly what was going on. It was unmistakable. Not necessarily did everybody understand it, but God was revealing himself through the Spirit in an unmistakable way, like he had always 
done. Why would he do that? Well, he would do that so that everybody listening and hearing and present would know that the movement that they called the way was really the way. He was confirming that he who had always been was now doing this. And it's really important. In fact, I would ask you, you got to kind of bookmark this because he's going to do it a couple more times throughout the book of Acts as the gospel goes to more people groups. You got to bookmark it. It's huge. So the spirit came in a way that was not only significant, but unmistakable. It also came in a way that was overwhelming. Because we're told that people during that time, verses 5 through 7, says this. Now, we're there, there, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? It was overwhelming to him. There's a crowd that's there. And they're from all over the known world. And now they're hearing these Galileans. Do you guys remember who these Galileans were? In a couple of chapters, they're gonna, two of them will be referred to as ordinary, uneducated men. Ordinary, uneducated fishermen. Didn't go to college. Didn't have a pedigree. Didn't have a degree. Just had rough calluses on their hands from casting nets and fishing and doing hard work. These ordinary, unschooled men who spoke, by the way, a loose form of Hebrew that was, that, was, that was connected to the area that they were from in Galilee, which was kind of a podunk area. They didn't even speak proper Hebrew from that area. It was kind of dumbed down, so to speak. These guys are now mastering languages from parts of the world that they've never been to. Like this. That just happens in a moment. And the people, Jews and those who had come to become Jews, they're all recognizing, wait a minute, this is a little overwhelming. We would expect this from some schooled, trained religious experts, but these guys speaking about the glory of God, it's a little overwhelming. And I think that's okay, right? Because I, I, I got to just let you know, if we cut the line a little bit and talk about our church experience, don't be surprised if God does some things that are a little overwhelming. Don't be surprised if at the same time God does something in your life or within our midst that we find simultaneously bewildering and amazing. Welcome to Christianity. So it was overwhelming. But it was also not just overwhelming, but it was unbelievable. Look at verse 8. It says, And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya that belong to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and those who have become Jews, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. 
It was unbelievable. We read it as a story, don't we? How many of you have read Acts chapter 2 before? Most of us, would, if we've ever been around the Bible, we'd raise our hand and said, yeah, I've even taken a class on it, right? We've done this. But it's an unbelievable moment because in this moment, God does something to where his gospel is starting to go out into all the world in the matter of seconds. Because his spirit comes and gives these Galileans the ability to speak the gospel. It says the mighty works of God. The mightiest work of God is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Amen? The mightiest of God's works is the work of his son. The life, death, and resurrection. And so these people are communicating it. The spirit comes upon them, empowers the early church to do exactly what God said that they had to do. Doing exactly what he put them on mission to do. And that was to go and make disciples of all people in all nations. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. These Galileans, they're from Galilee. The extent of most of them, the extent of their travels in life was like 90 miles, right? They live from here to Roseburg and back, that's it. And God says to them, you're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to take my message to all the world. And they're like, how is that going to happen? And God on Pentecost says, well, let me show you. And he gives them the ability to speak these languages on a day. Did you catch that? On a day when there are Jews from all over the world there. There. What are these Jews going to do? It's a pilgrim feast, meaning this. They camped out. And after the camp out was over, what did they do? They went home. You ever been on a long journey? You ever been on a long journey? As soon as you get home from the journey, what do you do with all your friends and family members? If you want to bore them to death, you hook up your phone to the TV and show them the pictures. <laughs> This was our next stop on Route 66. I don't see it. That's because it's not there anymore, but they tell us that's what it is. Well, what's that? Well, this is a different angle. <laughs> well, what's, well, what's that? Well, that's more of the same. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's exactly what we all do when we get back from a journey is we begin to tell everybody about the journey. And you got to believe that God knew what he was doing when these Jews from all over the world went back to where they lived all over the world, started talking about you would not believe what we just experienced. What did you experience? Okay, these podunk cowboys from Galilee. <laughs> they don't even have a command of the English language. They were telling me about the love of God in a way that not only I could hear, but in a way I could understand. For thousands of years, while the church argues and debates about what the presence of the Holy Spirit is supposed to look like in our lives, I know that we can hang our hat on this. It's supposed to look like his love communicated to the world around us in a way that they can hear and understand. Amen. The Spirit's arrival was unbelievable. Yet, much like it is today, understood, misunderstood. Look at verse 12. It says, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? They were amazed. Something's going on. It was on, something's happening. 
but they were also perplexed. I don't know what it means. <laughs> so it was kind of misunderstood that way, but even more so, look at verse 13. But others mockingly said, they are filled with new wine. So the Jewish people, the Jewish culture in that day in Jerusalem trying to make sense of it all, only makes, they make sense of it by the way that they only know how. The ones who were complaining and criticizing it had already decided that they didn't want anything to do with Jesus. So this can't be a move of God, so we've got to explain it another way. Don't forget at this festival, they would be celebrating the first fruits of harvest. I don't think, here, I'll help you. Think grapes. And when you think grapes, think wine. Are you with me? This was a festive celebration. It was a, for lack of a better term, party for God's people. It wasn't like our parties, but it was a party nonetheless. And they were celebrating God's provision. They were celebrating God's presence. They were celebrating his covenant. They were celebrating all things God, including how he had taken care of them and provided for him. And they would do so even with the first fruits and the wine flowed. So these critical Jewish people explain this away the only way they know how, and that's this. They're drunk. It says this. It's funny. They are filled with new wine. Now, spiritually, we recognize you bet they were. Practically speaking, what they were doing were criticizing the first followers of Jesus as being drunken out of their mind. Irreverent Jews who can't control themselves. So don't forget this. That day when God gave his spirit and fulfilled his promise was also misunderstood. And don't be surprised if when you desire, when we desire to live out our Christian faith. Don't be surprised if it's misunderstood, criticized, and... Thank you. Did somebody say twisted? That was you? You want to just come up here? I gotta... We can get you a handheld. We can just riff back and forth, back and forth. However, I do appreciate it because obviously, no, Rick, we're not doing it. Obviously, <laughs> I couldn't think of a word, but that's the word. And we shouldn't be surprised when that happens. Without a doubt, for them then, before we even talk about us, for them then, we're halfway through. Get comfy. Nobody found it funny. Everybody's like, okay. I don't know what we're going to do with our kids. Well, it's not yours to worry about. She'll take care of it. It's fine. <laughs> fair. But for them, without a doubt, God was making it clear that he was still going to be their guide, their wisdom, their power, and strength. Only it wasn't going to be written on tablets of stone. It was going to be him present within their heart. For you and I, how do we make sense of the reality of the Spirit? Well, it means the same thing for us today. But most importantly, we have to recognize that God the Spirit is really about God. The Spirit. God. And in this passage, he reveals himself in some unique ways that I think are worth paying attention to. Number one, he reveals himself as the God of providence. It is not a coincidence that all of this happened within the Jewish calendar that he had given them thousands of years before. 
It is not a coincidence that he providentially had been working upstream for thousands of years so that at this moment, the fulfillment of all that he had planned and promised was coming to fruition. He's a God of providence. He has always known what he's doing. He always knows what he's doing, and he will always know what he's doing. And what that requires for you and I is we see him as a God of providence. It requires that we trust him. Even when we don't see what he's doing upstream, we trust him. Even when downstream, as the rushing waters from upstream that he's organized seem to flow over us in a way we didn't see coming or expect or even want, we got to trust him because he's a God of providence. He's also a God of presence. And I think that's important for us to recognize. It's important for us to recognize his presence is within us, not just among us. Does that make sense? See, if we, if, we, if, we, if, we, if we misunderstand it the other way around, what we'll do is what Christians have done for thousands of years. We'll go to church on a Sunday, try to get filled up, and then empty it out on Monday, rolling in here on the next Sunday morning, half dead, tired, discouraged, frustrated, and overwhelmed, just thinking that the music and the message better be good because I need to be filled back up. Listen, that's a, it's a, just for lack of a better way of describing it, and I didn't grow up in church, so I'm just going to say it, that's a terrible way to do church. That's a terrible way to look at church. As if the, the, the presence of God is only within this sanctuary. I'm going to tell you what, I've been in here like 11.30 on a Wednesday night. It's dark and scary. <laughs> And if I didn't know and theologically understand that the presence of God was within me, this would not feel like a godly place on a Wednesday night at 11.30. It's an old building that makes lots of old noises that you think are something that's definitely going to destroy you. <laughs> then we have staff members who say that it's haunted. <laughs> Even though they know. <laughs> She's not in here. Don't worry about it. The haunted is not real. See, if we just do church that way and we're just trusting that his presence is only at church, we're going to miss it. The new thing and the new wine that God was doing was putting his presence within them. Jeremiah speaks of it. I'm going to take their heart of stone and I'm going to re-enliven it by his spirit. The presence of God in our lives. That is both hopeful and terrifying, isn't it? It's hopeful because in moments of despair, we can sit here and go, yes, but I know God is with me even when I feel alone in a dark, scary, noisy sanctuary that's weird on a Wednesday night. I know that God is with me then. It's also terrifying when you're in the midst of doing something you know better than what you should be doing. The presence of God. He is a God of presence. And we should, without a doubt... Engage him just as he engages us. Recognize him, that he's always with us. <laughs> he's also a God of awestruck wonder. Remember when, in verses 5 through 7, where the crowd is like, I don't know what all of this means, but it's pretty amazing. I don't think we should lose that about God. Amen? Amen. 
I know in all of our theological teaching and in all of our trying to study and Bible studying and small grouping and lectures and workshops and all of the tools and things that we read and all of the things that we try to embrace, I know that we do so so that we can try to understand God better. Amen? And we do that, and that's really good, but we can't do so to the point to where he is no longer God. He's always going to be God, and as such, there is always going to be an awestruck wonder about him. I say we just embrace it. Amen? I say we just recognize, you know what? There's always going to be a dynamic of God that is way beyond me, overwhelming me, and absolutely amazing to me. I say instead of trying to figure it out and understand it, how about we worship him? How about we do that? How about we do what Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, and offer our lives as living sacrifices in, in the light of his awe-inspiring, wonderful presence? He's never going to not be God. And we've got to recognize it. And here's why that's important. Because if we'll worship him in the reality of his awestruck wonder, then we'll be more apt to know him and obey him as the supreme authority in our life. It's huge. He's a God of awestruck wonder. He's also a God of amazing grace. Isn't he? Like, look at what he does. It's his grace. He could have demanded that these people from all over the world come to him and go through and jump through a bunch of hoops to learn about his love. In fact, that's what they expected. When they traveled to Jerusalem, they could only go to certain parts of the temple at certain times and in certain ways. But yet at this point, God wholesale says, no, 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 no. We're going to jump all of that. And in my amazing grace, amazing grace, he's not Texan, in my amazing grace, I'm just going to make sure that you you all know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I love you. And here's how, how are you going to do that? I'm going to let you know in your own language in a way that you can not only hear, but also understand. It's absolutely gracious. Don't forget, we're not talking about a good bunch of people. We're talking about the people that Paul himself in Romans chapter 3 would say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet, in his amazing grace, he makes sure that they know about his amazing love. Yeah? He's a God of amazing grace. Let's embrace it, right? Day after day, moment by moment. Finally, we'll end with this. I think he's a God of unwavering commitment to his cause. In a day and age where startups stop, where people come and go, where fads are here today and gone tomorrow, in a day and age where nothing seems constant and everything seems changing and confusing, he reveals himself as a God of unwavering commitment to his cause. At the end of this passage, people are criticizing what's going on as if he doesn't know what he's doing. And he maintains a commitment to it because next week, as we will see, he'll raise up one of those uneducated, ordinary Galileans named Peter and he'll preach a sermon that changes the world. And what he did then, he still does today. Why? Because we're still here doing the same thing. Even if our sermons aren't as great as what Peter's were, was, he's still doing the same thing. And as the God of, un, of, of unwavering commitment to his cause, we can count on. Thank you for listening. 
For more information about Rogue Valley Christian Church, please visit our website at www.rvchristian.com.